Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, So there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Michelle Lennon. Uh, she's a research scientist, part of the American Museum of Natural History. And we're going to talk about ant microbiomes. So, Michelle, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me about your work. How did you get interested in ants and you know what else are you working on? And, and we'll get into the microbiome stuff. Yeah. So, in my current job, I work at a research station in southern Arizona, And it's a biodiversity hotspot. So as part of my work, I end up working with a variety of different types of biologists. So I've been helping out on hummingbird studies with owls and lizards and plants. So I get a broad swath of biological experience while trying to support our researchers. But I also do some of my own research here. And my background is in ants. I started out in my doctoral work with a lot of questions about how ants find and collectively decide to forage for resources in the environment. So I've done a lot with behavior and ecology and collective behavior modeling. And through that type of work, I had more and more questions about ants' diet Like, what do they eat? Why do they eat it? And how do they digest it? Which turned into this uh, sort of a rabbit hole going deep into what is happening inside of the ants. So 
a lot of my current research is on how ants process the foods they ingest, both as adults and as larvae, and that involves their microbes, but it also involves the morphology of the gut. So I'd say what I've I, really I don't even know if this stuff is not about people. It sounds really no, detailed. <laughs> Right. So I guess the way that I think about microbes is very visual. I want to know what does the inside of an ant actually look like if you were at that scale, just like you can walk around in a forest ecosystem and you'll see a variety of complicated structures and things happening. I think when things are really small, we we tend to just visualize it as kind of a mush or, you know, like a list of microbes, but there's just as much structure there as there is in the forest. So I want to see like, what are the microbes adhering to? What is the gut shaped like? And how are those shapes designed to interact with the microbes? So that's really cool. Imaging and that sort of thing, like actually looking inside. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. That's rare to have someone that that is interested in how things look in their shapes and all that. And so tell me what, what are some of the interesting things you've seen? One of the structures that early on got me really fired up is called the proventriculus. And it's just a valve. It's the valve that regulates the flow of liquid between the foregut and the midgut and hindgut. So all insects, ants included, have three basic gut segments. The foregut and hindgut are lined with exoskeleton cuticle just like the outside of the animal and the midgut is not so early on scientists thinking about social insects like ants noted that this valve between the foregut and the midgut must be doing something important regulating the flow of food between food that belongs to the collective and food that belongs to that individual because why why do you say that because ants regurgitate food is that what you mean so okay The first chamber of their stomach is storage. It's not digestion. It's lined in exoskeleton. It's a storage balloon. And from there, they regurgitate. And not all ants in a colony forage. If you look at, say, a colony outside my house here, uh, maybe 10% of the workers in that colony are going out and getting food. Everyone else who's underground is being fed by those workers who are regurgitating. So you can imagine that all the food that's in all the crops, the first stomachs of all the ants collectively is the stomach of the colony. And yeah, that's really interesting. Instead of hand-me-downs, you have throw-me-ups. Until it passes that valve to the midgut. Yeah, so you wonder how it gets changed in that first, you know, right. hind, or what do they call it in that hindgut, midgut, uh, foregut, midgut. right? Yeah, foregut, midgut, hindgut, or crop, midgut. There's a lot of different words, terminology for all of these parts, because it's morphological literature tends to have a lot of detailed terminology. So is your theory that the ants that will eat some of the food and store it in that, you know, first gut, I guess their biology will probably act on it. And then when it's regurgitated and given to, you know, the other ants, who knows what gets entrained with that regurgitation and how it's changed before it gets to the subsequent ants that eat it, right? Right. And so one of the first questions I went after in seeing this, the morphology and especially the nature of that valve led me to believe that the microbial ecology in the different chambers of their uh, digestive tract 
would be different. You expect maybe there are different microbes in that first storage chamber than in the midgut where digestion is occurring, enzymes are secreted, and the morphological structures on a microscale are really different, and the chemistry may also be really different. So in the ants I've looked at, that is absolutely the case. Completely different microbes, different microbial community. So what, what's your... Um... Like, what's an example of some of the microbial differences? And can you tell what kind of metabolites they're creating or what their role is in yeah, the different parts so of the guts? One example is that it's one of the first ants I focused on. So that research is out first, it's published, is on the ant cephalodes, Rowari. And a lot of biologists, not just myself, have zeroed in on cephalodes because there's something crazy going on with their microbes. Other researchers had found that there's there appears to be co-evolution with the gut microbes and vertical transmission on an evolutionary timescale. And that should make you stop and say, wait a minute, that's insane. Because the gut is a tube that's open on both ends. Food goes in, it goes all the way through the animal and out the other end. And they're ingesting microbes every time they ingest food. So how could they possibly maintain such a specific microbial community in their gut that they could not only always have the same microbes, but co-evolve with them over millions of years? How do they do it? Well, I guess they would keep some of the, uh, the you know, some of the beneficial microbes in that, in that temporary microenvironment, I guess, would stay and other ones would just pass through, right? Well, you would think that, and that, that was sort of what I was thinking about initially, but when I sequenced microbes from different gut compartments, it looked like zero ingested microbes were getting through. Were they being consumed? No. So here's the amazing thing in cephalodes, that valve between the foregut and the rest of the gut is a super complicated, really beautiful little microstructure built out of chitin. And I had been studying that morphology. Right now I have a huge project looking at the evolution of the morphology of this gorgeous little structure across all the ants. But in cephalodes, I looked at this structure and looked at it and I couldn't see how anything could go through it. And I realized that this is a biological filter. It's a filtering device. So I came up with some experiments to actually test the porosity of the filter in their gut. And I found I had to do some, a lot of Googling and asking people and come up with a crazy experiment to test this. And I found out that they make these little plastic microspheres in very specific sizes that are fluorescent. And so I was able to feed the ants uh, fluorescent microspheres down to 200 nanometers. I just tested a whole bunch of sizes mixed oh, wow. with a blue dye. And the blue dye is a small molecule. So if anything, if water and sugar is going through, it should go through. So the hypothesis was that if I saw the blue dye go through, or really the prediction, if you saw the blue dye go through, but not the microspheres down to a certain size, then that would tell me what the porosity of this filter is. And microbes, most microbes are larger than 200 nanometers. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. 
Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So if you have a laboratory uh, millipore system for making ultra clean water, that's a 200 nanometer filtering system. There are a few microbes that are smaller, but in general, 200 nanometers is no bacteria are going to pass. Could, could you well, go these, smaller? These, could you go smaller? Because um, like viruses, viruses are usually like 22 Right. hundred nanometers and extracellular vesicles too. Maybe you can. I would love to test smaller sizes, but I wasn't able to obtain items that I could reliably detect using the microscope confocal apparatus I was using. So I was cut off at 200, but the ants very merrily filtered out every single 200 nanometer bead, every single one. So in the gut of every one of these little tiny ants is a filter that is as good as a lab filter you would buy for your laboratory for like $15,000. Yeah, that, that's crazy. That's really, really yeah. cool. I was huh. astounded. And where, where are they going, though, if they're getting filtered in the, the pre-gut? Where do they go? Where do they go? So that was the next question. And luckily with the little beads, the little beads have to go somewhere, too. So what happened was I had been feeding these ants to these um, microspheres for a specific set of time. I started putting them back in the colony for that uh, eight-hour period and then looking in the whole colony to see, okay, where did they go? Are they spitting them out? Because I know they can regurgitate from that chamber. What they're doing is somehow they are able to filter all the particulates out of any liquid they ingest, pack it into a pellet in what's called the infrabuchal pocket, which is a chamber in the mouth. Then once they have a pellet of all the solids they've ingested, and by solids, I'm talking about things that are microbially sized, they feed it to the larvae. So all the larvae in the colony were absolutely packed with all the beads I had fed them. Oh my God, that's crazy. So larvae in ant colonies, people have shown in a few cases, and I think it's going to turn out to be pretty widespread. They have a really different digestive system, but they participate in this back and forth sharing. So they're another collective stomach that's different. And they're the ones who are able to digest solids. Most adult ants, morphologically, it looks to me like they're only running on liquids. Solids literally will not fit through most ants' guts as adults. So they can give the solids, even tiny ones they filter out of their stomach, to the larvae. The larvae digests them in their very different wide open digestive system. And then adults will go over to the larvae and solicit droplets of regurgitated pre-digested food. What does the pre-gut look like on the non-foraging ants? With, you know, if it's not used for storage or is it used for storage? Like, is the regurgitate regurgitated ever twice in sequence? From forager oh, yeah. to resident of the colony and then to larvae? Absolutely. And back and forth and back and forth. A lot of ants that use trophallaxis, which is just the fancy name for ants regurgitating and sharing food, seem to not only use it digestively and nutritionally, but as a social 
communication and regulation mechanism. So ants will pass things back and forth and back and forth. And if you give something to one ant, let's say you give them a fluorescently dyed sugar, water, liquid, in a couple of days, you may find that in the foregut of half or more of all the ants in the whole nest. And they may store things in that foregut for a long period of time too. It doesn't have to be, it goes in that chamber it's, or it's held for a little while and then it goes to the midgut. It could be there for a while and be passed around for a while along with chemical pheromone signals. And But a lot of biologists going back at least a hundred years have zeroed in on this food sharing behavior as a a key social behavior in in eusocial insects like ants. It really is a collective stomach. There's so much sharing that you can't really isolate. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And say, this belongs to this individual and this belongs to this individual because in a couple hours, they may have swapped gut contents with each other and 50 other ants. So what if, what happens if a um, a forager ant eats a poison? Will it spread through the whole colony and kill them? Or do they have a filtering mechanism where they won't allow that to happen? So that's a thought. And that's the, you know, those baits you can get at Home Depot or wherever that say kills the whole colony. That's the theory right. behind that, right? Is that you feed something to uh, one ant and she takes it home and passes it around and hopefully gives it to the queen or queens. In practice, that doesn't work so well because A, ants are reasonably savvy about foods that they select and they don't always go for those baits. And B, you don't want it too fast acting because it won't get past very far. And C, colonies are often quite big and it's unlikely that what one ant picks up is going to be shared widely enough to make an impact. And often colonies have many more than one reproductive queen. So it's not so easy as send in one ant and kill the queen. You might make the colony sick for a little while or maybe cut down the numbers of workers for a little while. Um, how else do you see that uh, things are changed? Are you able to track certain, can you fluorescently tag certain bioactive molecules and to see what happens to them and how they're changed? So I haven't pursued that line of inquiry yet. I know there are other researchers who are doing a lot of fabulous research with what exactly those microbes are doing. For instance, uh, Jacob Russell and Corey Moreau's groups are putting out some amazing research now on what those special microbes behind the filter are doing in cephalodes biochemically. I am still sort of exploring what the physical structures are and how the microbes are adhering to those structures or interacting with those structures. I have so many unanswered questions there that I haven't gotten to the, what the metabolic questions that I have yet. For instance, I've got a lot of little projects started right now with honeypot ants. I don't know if you know what honeypot ants are there. Imagine a juicy little grape about the size of a grape with the front of an end of an ant stuck to it. That's what they look like. The colony has special workers who have an incredibly large foregut crop that can expand and expand and hold liquids. And these special workers can swell up with honey 
So they, they refine it like bees do in their mouth to reduce the water content until it's syrupy. And then they hold that liquid in their crop and they'll swell up to, you know, a centimeter across. And they hang from the roof of the chambers deep underground. And they're so unwieldy and fragile that if they are bumped and fall down, they will burst open and die. They can't walk around. They're really specialized. And their job essentially is to be the refrigerator for the colony. So they're long-term food storage. And they will hang their like little grapes full of honey all winter long when the colony isn't able to forage and there's no food coming in. And whenever food is necessary, other ants go to them and solicit regurgitation. So they hold that food in their body. It would be like if a beehive, instead of putting the honey in the comb, they put it in bees that swelled up. And so this is my my next uh, morphological puzzle because the honey there isn't sterile. It's not as concentrated as bee honey. It's got enough liquid in it that it should ferment. Um, I mean, that's microbial heaven right there. But if it ferments even a little bit, that ant will explode and die from the carbon dioxide. And I have seen bubbles in these ants very occasionally in my lab colonies. So I know that these ants have their own amazing little filtering valve. And I know they've got microbes in that foregut, in that honey, and probably some surface structures that interact with those microbes. Then they've got a filter that could interact with the microbes. And then they've got, they still have all their normal gut microflora past the filter. So they also have to keep those microbes from backwashing and destroying that honey reserve and killing the host. So it's an absurd scenario, right? (laughs) That somehow the ants are able to manage all those microbes using their physical structures to to hold that honey long-term. So that's my current puzzle is A, looking in there and seeing what microbes, what structures, and then B. Well, what have have you been able to tell about these microstructures, you know, that sequester the the tiny fluorescent beads? How can you... How can they do it? You know, are you able to watch a bead go through the structure? Could you, you know, put an ant in the lab and somehow watch it? Almost that good. Not quite. But so in the cephalodes, what I was able to do was to allow the ants to ingest the beads, have them in their gut for a couple hours, then take that live ant, anesthetize her on ice and then take her gut straight to the confocal microscope. So it's fresh out of a live organism. And with a confocal microscope, you can do something called Z-stacking, where you shine the laser through your specimen sideways, and it only fluoresces what the laser encounters. And very conveniently for me, I didn't have to do any prep on the specimens because cuticle naturally fluoresces a different color from my beads. So I can see the valve structure. I can see where the beads are and I can quickly reconstruct a 3D model of exactly where the beads were in time in the valve while, when I killed her. So that's one of the things I'm going to need to do with these honeypot ants is to see is their valve, which is shaped completely differently from the last one I investigated, the cephalodes. If what size of particle passes through there and what mechanisms are in place to regulate the movement of the bacteria 
And then also in the crop itself, in the foregut, a lot of the microbes that I've imaged in situ have extracellular structures for adhering to the ant's tissues. So these aren't microbes just floating around in the liquid. They are attached to the walls of the crop, mostly. Got extracellular fibers, and they're making little biofilms in there. It's a little... It's very organized. It's not a sure it is, of yeah. microbes. They are attached and sorted in all these interesting ways. Same with the mid- I guess like, like what, 80 or 90% of all bacteria and microbes are usually in a biofilm state? Yeah, and that's absolutely true in the gut too. But I think it matters because it affects where the microbes can be and it affects how, what mechanisms that host can exploit to regulate where they can be. The host can do things like make all the microsurfaces in the gut more or less conducive to microbe adhesion, or they can use chemical means to affect whether or not the microbes can adhere or how they sort out. And what I'm seeing when I actually look using SEM, TEM, confocal at those microbes in situ just like they were when the host died, is that they're very structured and sorted and that it the host is definitely playing a role in that in where the microbes are. What if um the it would, it would be pretty cool, I, I bet you this would happen, the inner composition, the inner membrane or wall of this core gut probably is one way upon ingestion and then right before regurgitation, I wonder if the, the signal goes through like the foregut and changes the composition, let's say to detach you know, some of the bacteria there so they could be, you know, regurgitated out. I've wondered that too. I've wondered if there's a way that they're sloughing off the interior lining, because when I dissect the ants under the microscope, I often will find like a ball of semi-solid material in the middle of the liquid contents of that crop, like layers had left off and clumped. And I wonder if that is what's going to get regurgitated back up, filtered out, and packed into the pellet up in the mouth. There's a lot of associated musculature in there, and the the little valve is super precise and has a variety of cool little motions it can go through um, that manipulate the sort of the filtering portion and the pumping portion. And it looks like some of them might be secreting some kind of mucus-like substance on the filtering surface there. And I, I have wondered if that's a host mechanism for basically catching and packaging up microbes for being sent back up to the, the mouth, um, because they seem to get sort of caught up in that uh, sticky matrix. One of the th- things I'd really like to know is what the composition <clears throat> of that material is. I've done a little bit of staining contrast, but I'd like to do some more detailed analyses. And I'd also like to determine, you know, is this a structure, these extracellular structures, is this something made by the host or is this something made by the bacteria or is it something they're making together? So you're saying that that various bacteria never make it past the foregut. They're totally Mm -hmm. kept in there and filtered, et cetera. Yeah, um, at least in one species, and I suspect in others. I haven't been able have to... Have you been able to look at an ant before and after regurgitation in the foregut? You know, like selectively look at it right after it's regurgitated to see what's different? I have not, because that's complicated. 
in that I think they're doing a little bit of regurgitating all the time. I don't think it's a single event. I think that there are probably some muscular contractions going on regularly that shuttle bits of flotsam back up to the mouth, even when the ant isn't doing a big regurgitating activity with another ant. Uh, That's kind of the only explanation for how the particles seem to move around over time. And there's certainly enough musculature on the crop and esophagus to be doing that all the time. Just like, like your respiratory tract has microvilli and other things that are constantly shuttling mucus and collecting particles. I think that there's a sort of a constant train of liquid movement and particle collection. I mean, you know, I'm not sure. Is it is it even possible to catch an ant before and after regurgitation, one before, one after, to see, again, what the foregut looks like? Yeah, so I think that the way to do that would be with micro-CT or something like that, because you actually want to look inside a live ant to, to catch the motion. Um, because from the outside of an ant, it's really hard to know if she's regurgitating or not because they can hold those droplets in their mouth and you can't really see it unless you open her up. So it's hard to say this is a post-regurgitation ant. I mean, if you, if you euthanize the ant and look into the foregut, do you think you'll lose a lot of information or what will happen? Yeah, I think you lose information as soon as you euthanize the animal in terms of, in, in terms of that question. But it's a good question that I think could be, could be investigated. I just think I need you know, some different technology there to really get at it and feel confident. I'm not seeing an artifact of how I anesthetized the animal. Well, I mean, for a start, you got to do something to start. So, you know, have you tried anesthetizing them before and after regurgitation to see, or is that just an experiment you haven't gotten to yet? Um, It's something I haven't gotten to yet, just because it's a behavior that's kind of constant. So it's like asking if, uh, if you could view an ant before and after walking if you I mean they are just doing it all the time so it's hard to pinpoint like this is the one regurgitation event I'm interested in there's a related behavior that I am investigating or a related question I guess I should say that I'm investigating with some colleagues I'm going to be collecting that regurgitate material from a large regurgitation event. So not this like ongoing constant shuttling of small materials, but when an ant actually regurgitates a large amount of stuff to a larva and then collecting both individuals to look inside, but also uh, sending my colleagues that regurgitated material to look for what proteins are in there right at that moment of regurgitation. Because not only is there food in there, and not only are there microbes in there, but the ants also have these large glands, large salivary glands. And the material from these glands goes straight into that stored material and then gets regurgitated. And we think it's probably being used for a lot of signaling as well as food processing. So there are potential pheromones, potential endocrine regulators for larvae and so forth in that regurgitate that's being shared. And that may be where messages such as you are a larva that's going to develop into a queen or you're a larva that's going to develop into a worker or you're not going to develop your ovaries while I'm a reproductive and I am. Some of that information may be transmitted via the 
these regurgitation events with these proteins. So the first step is to find out what's in there. Okay, so what are what are some of the experiments that you're going to be doing over the next year that you think will shed light on what's going on? Yeah, so over the next year, I have a massive data set on the morphology of the gut from about 100 genera of ants across the whole phylogenetic tree now. And I'm working on assembling all of this into a big picture of how gut morphology has evolved in the ants in relation to their diet and in relation to the microbes that they're hosting. And so that's a big project I'm working on. I'm now getting at various questions to do with these honeypot ants. I think they're a very interesting and promising system because they're doing some amazing things with their gut and their microbes have to be participating. But there are so many unanswered questions, such as why don't they just ferment, explode and die? I mean, how do they do it? They're doing an amazing trick. I don't understand. What do you, what, what trick, who, what trick are you referencing? Oh, the trick there is holding vast amounts of sugary liquid in their gut for months and months and months without letting it ferment, without digesting it, without letting their gut microbes break it down and ruin it. Well, are they uh, in the foregut? Do you see aerobic bacteria or do you see anaerobic? You know, what, what about midgut and hindgut? Yes. In a typical ant, there are aerobic bacteria that show up in the foregut and you certainly can pick up anaerobic bacteria now and then. So I don't expect that these ants have a sterile, clean gut to hold all this sugar, sugary liquid in. So if there are microbes in there, why aren't they ruining that load of resource? Well, why say ruining? Why aren't they partially digesting and changing it into a form that maybe larvae, you know, particularly can use or other yeah. ants in the colony can use? Well, it's a good question, but uh, the main challenge for insects that hoard sugary liquid specifically is that those are already one or two ring sugars. And so the next metabolic step is breaking that down and releasing CO2 or else going a different route. You could, you could create ethanol or acetic acid, but a lot of CO2, a lot of ethanol or a lot of acetic acid is not good for the host, right? It's, it's glycolysis at this point. So the ant should want to retain that food as a sugar, not as a breakdown product of sugar. If they end up with a whole lot of CO2 in their gut, they will fill up with gas and it will eventually rupture the gut and the ant. If they end up with a lot of ethanol, there will be effects on the hosts as well. If they end up with a lot of acetic acid, that's probably also not not good for the host. So, well, are the things that digest sugars aerobic or anaerobic? And there might be a little bit of that, but maybe there's a, an arresting of it or a stopping of it because of the conditions. Yeah, well, there's there's microbes are very good at using both aerobic and anaerobic pathways to break down sugars. So that's the challenge, uh, right? This is this is material that any self-respecting bacteria should be able to utilize metabolically and break down as well right. as so have, you, have you sampled the guts of ants that have had you know sugars in them for a length of time versus ones that have just put it in there that's the plan right so okay. how does that sugar change 
how does it change? And if it doesn't change, how is that ant keeping those microbes under control? How are we not, you know, producing some beer or some vinegar or <laughs> something else in that gut as it sits there? Only what about the rest of the ants? Can you tell if, um, you know, some of the stuff they're eating is ending up in other parts of their body or metabolites of it are? That's an ex- excellent question. So I'm talking about sugar here. And if you're thinking about a complete diet, you're thinking, well, that's not going to keep an ant colony going. It's only carbon. Where's their protein? The honeypot ants collect plenty of protein and they like fatty foods as well. They get a lot of insect prey as well as collecting things like nectar. And they're sorting that out somehow because they're not mixing all of those food sources into the replete ants that are storing the sugars. In a beehive, the bees do this by having separate cells on the comb for the pollen, which is full of protein, from the honey, right? You have a cell, it's either honey or pollen. So one of the questions I'm going to try to investigate is in these ant colonies, how are they separating out types of nutrients Where are they storing protein, fat, and if so, where? And then what is the exact composition of the sugar that they are storing in the replete stomachs? Anecdotally, so these ants are like big, beautiful droplets of honey, and they make a tasty snack. So I've eaten one before. Native people around here used to dig down into these colonies to eat these ants, and a lot of wildlife will dig in. Around my house right now, badgers have been digging down into the nests and eating big swaths of these honey-laden ants. Yeah, they're so anecdotally, they're almost always sweet, but they vary in flavor. So I actually, I have a friend who keeps a number of these colonies, and he feeds them a lot of apple slices. And if you eat one of his ants, she will taste like apple-flavored honey, but they do there's some variation depending on what they're eating, but it, they always seem to separate the sugar out somehow. Yes, it's staying true to the original form of the sugar somehow, at least, right? Yeah, um, but we don't know the basic composition of this material, right? When I'm saying honey, I'm basing that off of flavor. So I really want to finish analyzing a set of samples that I've taken from repletes in different colonies. So I have a better sense of, okay, what sugars are in there at what concentration and what other molecules are present? Because that's going to tell me a lot about uh, potential for microbial activity. Well, again, what about the microbes themselves? Have you sequenced them in the different guts and what do you see as to their function? Yeah. So in the cephalodes, we sequenced those microbes. And Hoy Moreau and Jacob Russell have gone further and done some studies of what that microbial community is expressing in terms of metabolic activity. And there, there's some interesting things. The, one of the key microbes that is called cephalodococcus now after the ant uh, appears to be able to recycle nitrogen, which is awesome for the host. So we had known before these studies that these ants had a weird diet 
And that one of the things they were attracted to was uh, bird droppings, the white uric acid crystals. They would ingest that. And that one of the only baits you can use in the field to actually catch these ants is urine. So these ants eat urine and uric acid. And for, you know, most organisms, that's a end point for nitrogen use. That is not useful nitrogen. That's waste. Right. You need a new source of nitrogen from protein, and then you break it down, and eventually you end up with the end product of uh, urea, uric acid, and then you've got to discard that. You can't recycle that. Well, but what do the ants eat it and turn it into? The ants eat it, and then the cephalodococcus that they have preserved in their mid-gut and hindgut behind that beautiful little filter recycles it back up into amino acid. So if I have gout, I wonder if I should... Uh... <clears throat> feed on my blood and you take the uric acid out of it you can see if they would be attracted to it they might yeah i had that thought they might be actually yeah it's weird or someone with uh with diabetes i mean i guess it would be gross but they might be attracted to the urine or something ants are surprisingly picky about what they will and will not eat i've kept colonies of my own for a long time and they not only are they picky but their tastes change it's like having a finicky cat or something that wants a different brand of cat food every week. Oh, okay. Well, what do you, is the cycling dependent upon weather or what is it? No appear to idea. It seems completely arbitrary, but I mean, it's really hard to get down on the level of an ant colony and ascertain exactly what their needs are. Yeah, but I mean, ants in the wild, they don't really have a choice. They got to go and forage and right. I would think they would just be opportunistic like dogs and eat anything. Well, they are and they aren't. You'd be surprised. They are really attuned to the environment, which is always changing. And I'll see them getting all sorts of different things outside. But occasionally you'll see them reject something that they were really excited about a month ago. One example is the prickly pear fruits that show up around here in uh, August. Often there's an ant called Novomesser cockerelli who typically loves those fruits and will just take them completely apart and carry it all off. And they're all uh, bright pink inside because the the fruit has the same pigment that's in uh, beets, balins. So they're, they're beet red. But there have been other weeks when those fruits are abundant and the ants are like, I've even smashed fruits right next to their, their nests to see them go for it. And they just kind of they look at it and go off to look for something else. Well, is this after they've had that kind of fruit, so they're full? Or is it, uh, no. you know, there could be signaling if they're regurgitating a certain food to the rest of the colony. The colony may signal them no more of this food. Yeah. Find something else, you know, that may be directed. The, the major hypothesis among ant researchers that's, you know, been supported in various cases is that uh, the nutritional needs the hunger, if you will, of the colony is driven by the brood. So all those larvae, there's some way in which the larvae are signaling to the foragers, we want this, we don't want this. A good rule of thumb is that when larvae are actively developing and growing, that's when the colony needs the most protein because adult ants don't grow any further. They don't really need protein to run. An adult ant can run on sugar. 
uh, in terms of her energy. But to grow brood and create more ants, you need protein. So the more brood there is, the hungrier the brood is, the more protein-hungry colonies are. So I know there have been some studies that have shown that foragers are more aggressive uh, in, as they hunt for insects if there's a big load of developing brood, which isn't to say they won't turn down some sugar, but it's not as simple as now they have brood, so they want protein, and now they don't, so they don't want protein. Their needs seem to vary day to day and week to week. There's usually always some brood, but sometimes it's developing faster or... Well, how long, how long is the residence time from when there's foraging and eating to regurgitation to other ants? How long does that happen typically? Good question. Probably varies by species. Again, we're, we're really generalizing because there's a lot of ants doing a lot of different things. But a forager would go out on a foraging trip. Let's say she finds something sugary. Uh, she would walk back. Maybe that takes her 20 minutes. As soon as she's in the door or in the hole, she starts sharing. She might just share a taste with other foragers who are lurking right inside the nest entrance. And they will taste that and say, oh boy, there's something good out there. And they will all come out to go find the, the new excellent thing. That's the, what happens when a whole bunch of ants suddenly show up at your picnic. The news was shared. She might or might not set pheromones down to lead other ants out. But just that simple act of sharing that first taste is enough to get ants excited about foraging themselves. If there's something that, you know, near an ant nest, I don't know, an ice cream falls on the floor. Do a few ants go out, sample, bring back that, then they get authorized to, to send the home colony? Or ha, are, they doing, are they doing pheromone signaling without leaving the ice cream and just gorging on it? Or what's happening? I wish there was one answer to that question. There's about 30 answers to that question, depending on the species. So ant foraging is not one mechanism it's for variable across all ants. So one way, so it, a single ant could go out, find that ice cream, come back to the colony, get the other ants there excited, and then they all get a taste and they say, we should go foraging. And they all head out as solitary foragers and they eventually bump into the ice cream. So that's method one. Or in another species, they could do what's called tandem running. That ant comes back. And she doesn't have a great way of leading the other ants to the ice cream, but she can get the other ants excited and get one ant to follow her, physically touching the back end of her the whole way with antennae. And if the other ant loses contact and gets lost, she'll just go in little circles until the leader comes back and then leads her the rest of the way. That's another way. Or ant comes back found something good, gets ants excited, and she leads a little train of ants. Again, physically, she has to lead. Um, that's group foraging. Or ant comes back, she's excited. She lays a short-term pheromone trail by dragging her butt or other gland on the ground the whole way back. And there's a volatile chemical that the other ants can detect and they know to follow. So she gets the other ants excited at the nest and they say, we can follow this trail. And in that case, she doesn't actually have to lead. She could stay home and they could still get there. So that's the first example of an actual pheromone trail. But it's not the only kind of pheromone trail. There are two, maybe three other kinds of pheromone trails. So there are trunk trails, which are like these big directional trails from the nest entrance. 
that are long lasting and they have longer multiple pheromones involved and or actual physical landmarks and they'll actually clear a trail or there could be a trail network which is different kind of trail regulation, different pheromones, different morphology of the trails. Or we could have a rating situation where the ants actually do like a, there's two varieties of army ant type rating that could happen. Um, And that's a collectively organized uh, leaderless phenomenon that will sort of sweep across the landscape and scoop up resources when they are incited to forage. Uh, that's a whole interesting topic. Or there are even a few other mechanisms that could be at play here. Um, some ants actually have a volatile chemical they can release when they're, say, at that ice cream cone that makes a cloud of this scent in the vicinity. And then all the other ants that pick it up in that area, it's like setting off the alarm, they will orient towards. Um, up the gradient of that chemical concentration until they end up where the one that set off that volatile pheromone is. Amazing. And I'm sure there are other methods that I don't know about. <laughs> well, very good. Um, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. And it yep. seems like we could talk for a lot longer. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, you can check out the Southwestern Re- Research Station. The Southwestern Research Station at the American Museum of Natural History. Just uh, Google us. Or just plug my name into search engine for articles. Well, very good. Michelle, thank you for coming. It's been a really cool call. Thanks for talking to me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.